Questions on chapter 18. Genesis 18. The first question. Go ahead. Um, so, uh, a couple of things. So, do you think then that Abraham knew that this judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah was a picture of eternal judgment? Yes. And that's do I think? Wanted, that's why he wanted there to be this separation. Because yes. Because you see again, as you read, there are other passages where the righteous suffer alongside the wicked, like the destruction of Jerusalem where all of Daniel is taken into captivity, Jeremiah is taken into captivity. You have these righteous men who suffer because of the sin of the nation. But in this case, there's a, there's, he wants there to be a distinction between the two. Yes. So the question, do I think Abraham wants the judge of the, all the earth to do justly because he knew that there was eternal judgment and his concern was to, for God to make a distinction? Yes, that's, that's what Abraham is doing. He certainly knows about the afterlife. He's a prophet of God. And he wants to make sure that the righteous are treated properly. So he's praying in accordance with God's will, which is like Romans 8.28. Uh, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And what shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or famine or nakedness or peril? Right? Uh, nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He knows all of that. So he prays in accordance with it. He knows what God intends for the righteous, for his people. He knows what he intends, so he prays in accordance with it. And this is a, uh, one of the preeminent or great examples of the judgment of God in the whole Bible. Yes. It's used repeatedly as an example of eternal Yes, this example of Sodom and Gomorrah, that's why I mentioned that sometimes the Bible just says Sodom or Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's not only here, it's in Deuteronomy 29, it's in Isaiah chapter 1. Um, This judgment on Sodom um, is repeated in Jeremiah, in Amos, it's repeated in 2 Peter, in Jude, it's repeated even in Matthew 11 by Jesus. So Sodom is mentioned again and again and again throughout Scripture as an example of what God does to wicked people if they don't repent and what will happen to them on the Day of Judgment. It's a sign of the Day of Judgment. It's an example of the Day of Judgment. That's why it's fire and brimstone. Fire and brimstone, which comes upon them suddenly. They don't expect it. And that's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and it will come upon them suddenly. While they are saying peace and safety, it will come upon them suddenly, he says. That's the picture that Sodom is. Follow up to that. Uh, So so the judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah, the identifying of their sin, the condemnation, the judgment against it, that is the justice and righteousness that God wants Abraham to know and understand. Correct? Yes. So when he says that he doesn't want to withhold this from him, because he needs him to understand what is righteousness and what is justice, because he has to instruct his family and then teach others as well. And then the specific thing is the destruction of the ungodly. It's, It's the judgment against these cities because of their 
their sin. So then the justice and righteousness in this context is identifying sin and making a proper pronouncement of judgment against it. Yes. Which is what we need to deal with. Right. I say that because, again, it's very common today that justice and righteousness are talking about social uh, classes, uh, oppression, poverty, these types of things, and not sin. Yeah. Okay. Justice in the Bible is not the way modern um, um, political uh, rhetoric and even that political rhetoric in the church, in the evangelical church, what they say is social justice is really unbiblical. It has nothing to do with the Bible. It's foreign and contradictory to the Bible and the true gospel. Because basically social justice is liberalism, Marxism, communism, socialism. That's what it really is. Leftism. Leftism is contrary to the Bible. It, there's no doubt about it. They, it is atheistic and it's antithetical to biblical conservative Christianity. That's what the way that's the way the political culture is and that political culture has infiltrated the church through the media, social media, through education, through the uh, movies, all of this, that's what has happened. And all of it is contrary to identifying sin as the Bible describes sin. Right. We have to describe sin the way the Bible describes sin, not the way the world defines it, but the way the Bible de defines sin. And when we define it biblically, it has to do with, um, from a biblical perspective, how can we tell somebody he is a sinner so that he repents of his sin properly, believes in Christ for his salvation? That's where the focus is, is not in the political rhetoric of today. Now, another thing you were saying was about justice. God is teaching Abraham. Yes, God is teaching Abraham that he makes these distinctions between the righteous and the wicked and that wicked people deserve what they get and Abraham should know about it, he should preach it, he should teach it to his household so that other people also understand that the righteous are righteous because of the righteousness of Christ but the wicked are wicked because of their wicked sin. Their sin deserves judgment and when God punishes wicked people for their sin, they get what they deserve. Abraham's not complaining about wicked people getting their wicked ends, their, their, or their, their punishment, their just punishment. He's not complaining about that. He just wants to make sure that there is a distinction that righteous people don't suffer along with the wicked. That, too, for us. We should rejoice in the fact that God punishes wicked people. We should rejoice in that. We should put faith in that. We should understand that and trust that God punishes wicked people. And why should we rejoice in it? The Bible actually commands us to rejoice. In Revelation 18.20, Revelation 18.20, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Babylon the fall, uh, the great falls in chapter 18. And when it falls, we are commanded to rejoice. O heaven, saints, apostles, prophets. Why? Not because we are better people than they. But because 
God has pronounced judgment for you on your behalf against her. They mistreated you because they didn't like your word of the gospel. And they didn't like your word of the gospel or hated your word of the gospel because they actually hated me, that is God himself, they hated him. And so when God is vindicated, we should rejoice. God is vindicated. They mistreated God by persecuting the people of God. Now that they are punished, they get what they deserve and God is glorified, so we rejoice. Just like Abraham. Abraham was taught the same. Next question. So the script, the, the proverb brother, reads something to this effect: "Rejoice not when your enemy falls." Yes. How, how do you reconcile that? I mean, I, I'm not denying what Revelation says, and I understand it, and it all goes and redounds to the glory of God. But how do you reconcile that with those verses that uh, teach that we should love our enemies, pray for those who uh, use us? Yes. Yes. Now, when it says, um, it's Proverbs twenty four seventeen, twenty four seventeen. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased, and he turn away his anger from him. Firstly, Proverbs 24 cannot contradict Revelation 18. Just to use two examples, right? So we have to... Uh, believe in the law or the principle of non-contradiction. A cannot be non-A. We have to understand that the Bible harmonizes because all of the Bible is by the Holy Spirit. Yes. So if there is a place to rejoice, like Revelation 18 says, then what is it he's teaching here? What he's teaching here is that we should not rejoice without cause. Without cause. For example... Um, 24, 20, even though that phrase without cause isn't there in 17 and 18, we have to take him to mean with, um, that without cause, that's what should happen. Um, if I may, I, I and, think and it is look at, joyful in the fall of a man versus that of giving praise to God for his righteousness of, well, his righteousness. Yes, okay. So in twenty four twenty eight, he does use the phrase without cause in a different context. He says, do not be a witness against your neighbor without cause and do not deceive with your lips. Now, if he had removed without cause, do not be a witness against your neighbor. Does that mean that you can never be a witness against your neighbor? No, no it would depend on the cause, the reason. But here he makes it very clear without cause. Okay. Now, there are examples in Proverbs, for example, when he does expect us to rejoice. Notice, um, it says in 29.6, Proverbs 29.6, By transgression an evil man is ensnared, but the righteous sings and rejoices. The righteous sings and and rejoices. By transgression, an evil man is ensnared, but the righteous sings and rejoices. Why does he sing and rejoice? Because wicked people are getting what they deserve. Wicked people are getting what they deserve. Notice in 29.16, he says, When the wicked increase, transgression increases. 
but the righteous will see their fall. The righteous will see their fall. Why the righteous will see their fall? They're going to see, just like it says in, in Revelation 18, they're going to see it and they're going to rejoice when that happens. Brother, just let me interject something real quick. What comes to my mind, even as you speak, and thinking in the context of that scenario, what comes to my mind is, there go I, except for the grace of God. Yes, yes. Sure. You know. Sure. That's what I said. That's what I said um, back when I was talking about Abraham in answer to the previous question. That that could be us, but yeah. we know that God's going to do what's righteous. We are righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. They are wicked because of their sin. Yeah. We're not righteous because of our own righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. Right. Yes. 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 That verse says, he stumbles. When he stumbles. The wicked ain't stumbling when they hate God. They're doing it with brazen face. The, the, the wicked, they are brazenly rebelling against yeah, God. They're not stumbling. Like that. It's not a temple thing. It's that's their way of that's yes. their way. Yeah, like that verse you brought up it says, Don't rejoice when your enemy stumbles. Well they're not stumbling. Okay. Now, if it is that way, if that is the interpretation that they are stumbling, then we do have a parallel to that, if that is correct, in Exodus 23, 4, and 5. 23, 4, and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. Instead of rejoicing that that's happening, you shall surely return it to him, your enemy. And then five. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. The donkey is carrying a load and it's helpless. It's been forgotten or something. The donkey is suffering. So what should you do? Go help the donkey. Because even if it's owned by a hater, one who hates you, if, even if it's owned by a hater, help out the hater's donkey. Yeah. Help out your enemy's ox. Help them out so they don't deserve to be mistreated even though they hate you. Don't mistreat them. Well, the Bible tells us that a righteous man, a godly man, is kind to his animals. So it comes back to God's conscience within us. That animal is suffering horribly. Am I going to turn my back on, you know, just because somebody that doesn't like me owns it? God commands the righteous to be kind to their animal. But, but this is in connection with the man himself, the enemy himself. The enemy, yeah. It's not our own animal, which is true. We should um, be compassionate toward our own animal, but the enemy's animal. That was Exodus 23, 4 and 5. Okay. All right, next question. One more. No more? Okay. Thank you. Yes. It'll be a quick one. Go ahead. 
do we, are, um, well, wouldn't that stumbling contradict that we can, that we're going to wash our feet in their blood one day? In the wicked? Yes. Yes, okay. So it, when it says do not rejoice, then there is a passage in the Psalms that says that we will wash our feet in the blood of the wicked. Um, it's in Psalm 58, Psalm 58, 10. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Psalm 58, 10, and 11. Uh, let, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask you to help us to understand these truths and to walk in the way that you've shown us here from this place, uh, this chapter of Abraham's life. We pray that we will be that way, just like he was. Work in us, work your spirit in us, may your grace abound in us. And also, Father, may we not only pursue righteousness and truth and holiness, as we've seen, but understand it in relation to others especially unbelievers, the wicked, and what happens to them and how we should handle them and treat them. Give us, Lord, your wisdom. Give us your knowledge. In Christ's name, amen.